Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Air Power Hour. Tech Sergeant Check here, and today I had the opportunity to sit down with Lieutenant Colonel Jared Warren, the Air Force ROTC Detachment Commander at Marquette University here in lovely Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In his current position, he oversees all facets of recruiting, training, and education for about 70 Air Force officer candidates per year. After graduating from the Air Force Academy in 2003, Colonel Warren entered the Combat Control Pipeline and completed Army Airborne School, Air Traffic Control School, and Special Forces Military Freefall School, along with many others. With almost 20 years of military experience and over 10 deployments in support of overseas contingency operations throughout the Middle East, Colonel Warren shared some amazing advice on how important foundational leadership is to the success of the mission. I greatly appreciated Colonel Warren taking the time to sit down and tell his story. He is truly an American hero and an inspiration. So, without further ado, Lieutenant Colonel Jared Warren. To all units, proceed to your post assignment. All units, proceed to your post assignment. Welcome to the Air Power Hour. All right, welcome back to the Air Power Hour. My name is Tech Sergeant Check, and today I am joined with the detachment commander of Marquette University, Lieutenant Colonel Jared Warren. Colonel Warren, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of crazy out. Uh, I woke up this morning and it snowed already. Yeah, it doesn't seem to uh, to stop past three days. It's uh, been coming down. I know. It, it's wild because were you here last year, sir? No, I just moved here in August. Just moved here in August. Wow. So last year we didn't get any snow in this area until... January 1st. Seems uh, pretty late for old Wisconsin. I know. And, and it was my first winter last year here. And I was like, where's the snow? Didn't get any snow for Christmas. Kind of awkward. You know, I didn't have that white Christmas. But this year, I think, I think we're good. I think we're going to get some snow for Christmas for sure. Yeah. It helps if, uh, if it's cold out, you at least want it to be pretty versus that, that black ice and just kind of miserable thing. So yeah, we're setting up good so far for the season. And where are you coming from before this? I moved in August from Washington, D.C. I was at the Pentagon on the uh, joint staff. Okay. Wow. So you, I mean, you're used to, they have cold weather out there. Yeah. So. Virginia, uh, the good part is it's got all four seasons. So you'll, you'll have that winter, but it's generally over after a couple months, uh, but definitely used to it. And then my wife is from Green Bay. So oh, nice. Excited to get back here and we, we knew we were getting into with, uh, with the weather and that's awesome. Yeah. Is she a big Packer fan? Huge. Big fan. Uh, so she was bummed last night after the uh, the Packer loss. They thought there was hope after beating Dallas, but uh, yeah, not sure they got got what they want this year for a team. Yeah, I was at the Packer game uh, when they played Dallas, and that was one of the greatest games that I've ever been to. It was so much fun, and we were riding that high. Uh, and last night was just it took the wind out of our sails. It was such a bummer. Yeah, Thursday's tough. I mean, a lot of time to heal up and overtime emotional win. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Colonel Warren, we have you here on the Air Power because, uh, I mean, first of all, we have the unique opportunity to have you so close. And uh, you have such an interesting story uh, throughout your career. And here on the Air Power, uh, our intent is just to hear that story. So, we're going to start right from the beginning. And uh, what I want to do is ask what made you decide that the Air Force and in your case, the Air Force Academy was the best route to take. 
Yeah, it's funny. You think you have choices uh, kind of growing up of all this stuff. But for me, uh, really, I don't know if there was anything else for me. Uh, my mom was in the Air Force. Dad was in the Army. Uh, uncle was a retired Air Force general officer, served in Vietnam. Two uncles went to the Air Force Academy. A third was Virginia Tech ROTC, so they all served. So it was definitely uh, on the radar early. I lived in Colorado when my parents were assigned there, so spent plenty of time at the Academy and kind of got to know it. So I definitely wanted to go into the service. I was willing to go kind of any route. Yeah. Uh, I think I was 50-50 to get into the Academy. Uh, so whether it was the Air Force or the Navy or the Army or a prep school, whether through the service academies or uh, the old Norwich University and, yeah. and see what you can do, I was willing to take that time to to get there or or do ROTC. So I think, you know, growing up, you're influenced by your parents and all that. And I uh, thought, thought the service would be a pretty cool way of life. Uh, yeah. Both job security an amazing mission and then uh the academy seemed to me a uh, a good route to get a, a start on that i liked like the environment the uh, nature of that kind of close-knit group um i just don't know if i knew any other way that's what i was uh aiming for and and, and went for kind of that become ashore and burn the ships type moment yeah and it takes a lot to to get into the academy i mean that is uh, pretty widely known for being one of the most difficult institutions to to get into so you had to do a lot to to get accepted i'm guessing yeah uh again how you do anything is how you do everything so i knew it was important to work hard probably for the sake of working hard and then set you up for the best opportunity you can and see what happens i was heavily involved in sports uh, had a good gpa i was terrible on uh, standardized testing though I, yeah. think I took my sat and act figured try them both see which one i can do better at and about the fourth time, I think I met their uh, their standard. But there's little summer internship programs you can do your junior year. I didn't qualify for any of those. Uh, so that's why I thought more prep school guy. But I think the advantage I had is they, you know, you do the interview process and I knew what I was getting into and it, it wasn't going to be a culture shock. So yeah. I think that helped. And then amazingly, when I got there, sure, it was academically difficult at times. Um, but I, I felt I had built the right processes. I knew how to work hard, knew how to study knew how to prioritize. Uh, and so I think that that helped get me through versus you see so many folks there who are just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and they can crush those academics, but maybe they don't like the the military side and they kind of grow to love it. Uh, so sure, it's a challenge. Um, but if you, you build the right habits and then continue to grow in that process, I think you can be successful uh, regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And did you have any type of mentors or I know that you, you said your your parents were in the service. Were they your kind of uh, key influencers in making the decision to to go Air Force? They were pretty hands off. Uh, they they supported me wanting to go in, but they never pushed me one way or the other. Um, I'd obviously ask lots of questions to them and and my other uh, uncles who were all in, uh, but everyone kind of gave me the the space to decide. Yeah, that's uh, nice. Maybe a bit of a rebellious child, independent, so they probably figured whatever they told me, I was going to do the opposite. Yeah, uh, but no, I, I I didn't feel pressure to do one thing or the other. Awesome. So you graduate from the Air Force Academy. Uh, what was your degree in? Economics. Economics. Very nice. And did you got to choose your your degree, right? You do. Yeah. Okay. And then you graduate with a degree in economics, and what's your next step after that? So junior year uh, of the academy, you go through special tax officer selection. So you give up a spring break, go down to Herbert Field and kind of go through their week-long process. Uh, so I knew graduating college, I already had my uh, Air Force selection code. 
So I headed down to Herbert Field, and that's about a two-year process. Wow. Uh, so I was very fortunate at my time in the academy to make some good friends who were interested in the same career field. So we moved down there and first taste of freedom because we don't have a normal college life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, get a get a place to live, and then you know the the pipeline in that two-year process is is a pretty good time. Very easy to keep the main thing the main thing. Your job is to train and get better and, and learn as, as as you go throughout the uh, the process. So in that two years, you travel quite a bit, um, going to, to different schools, and just an amazing adventure. You're, you're going to jump school, halo, dive, uh, combat control school, and you're just bonding with people. You're getting better at what you're doing and, and really kind of learning what it takes to be a leader at that level of anywhere from 20 to 40 E2s and maybe of one E5. Yeah. And you start figuring out uh, what your leadership philosophy is and, and start learning some quick lessons on uh, what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. For sure. So can you tell our listeners and kind of explain when you say pipeline, uh, what do you mean by pipeline? Sure. So the, the pipeline is just kind of the way we refer to that, that two-year process. So it's different now, but when I went through, there was an initial kind of orientation course, and then you go to air traffic control school. So you spend four months learning how to do the, the basics to land in a, um, a VFR, visual flight recognition system. Once you've been certified there, you'll go to combat control school, which is a three-month process. Uh, up at Fort Bragg, and that's kind of where you learn the the journeyman three level skill set sure. uh, of how to do uh, a variety of things combat controllers do, from controlling airfields, landing aircraft, establishing an austere assault zone, um, and then just repetition after repetition in the basics yeah. of, of how you how you master the fundamentals. From there, you're awarded your beret, so it's a, a big deal. You're you're happy to get the old Scarlet Beret, and then you get into your advanced skills training. So. For us, it's, it was at Herbert Field. Uh, so the first evolution is dive school. Uh, so you'll spend four weeks doing pre-scuba, and that's getting you ready to go to either Key West or the Marine Corps. Now the Air Force Special Warfare has their own dive school. Awesome. So the preparatory phase there. And then once you get through that gate, it's, it's generally one that uh, will get a lot of folks because uh, the, the water is a different equalizer when it comes to your, your ability to relax and be confident. Yeah. And, uh, then you start getting pretty excited. Halo, um, high altitude, low opening. Uh, out at Yuma, New Mexico was a great time. Uh, it's kind of the reward after going through the, the suck fest of dive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so great time. And then really from there, you come back to Herbert Field and you focus on the, the infill basics, really mastering what you learned. Because when you get done with those schools, you're just, just deadly enough to be dangerous to yourself. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing. So you got to get more reps in. Now you start putting it together. So I know how to get to work by either jumping or diving or, or vehicle ops. Um, now when I'm there, what am I there to do? So yeah. for our mission set, it's really, you know, combat search and rescue from a, an AFSOC standpoint, uh, to, do we jump into this dirt strip and survey it to make sure it's uh, suitable to land aircraft? And now we bring in those aircraft and you start conducting your follow on operations. And that all really culminates in about a two year timeline, uh, when you reach that five level skill set, and then you're deemed operational, go to your operational unit and kind of progress from there. Yeah. That's awesome. I had a, when I was a recruiter, I put in a, a combat controller uh, into the special operations and I didn't, I mean, I, I heard from him, but he was at school for so long and, and he finally came back and he had GoPro videos of him jumping out of airplanes and he was a completely different person. It was amazing to see his transformation and he had his beret on and he led our, our PT session with my delayed entry program people and just the way he had held his head so high, he was so proud. And uh, it was just really cool to see a kid that I, I've 
you know, talked to him when he was in high school. Now he's a combat controller. Uh, really, really cool to see that. And uh, that high altitude, low open. I mean, that sounds so cool. E- they, even the, just the name, the acronym, HALO. What exactly, I mean, we can say high altitude, low open, but people might be like, I don't even know what the heck they're talking about. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, so there's, there's a mission requirement where you may not always be able to land an aircraft. So you're going to get in a C-130, C-17, uh, climb up to anywhere about ten to 12,000 feet. You can, go, you can go much higher, 17,000, 18,000 feet. The higher you go, the, the more complicated it gets for oxygen requirements and the sure. risk escalates. Uh, but you'll get up to those elevations. You jump out as a as a team, and, and again, these things are months and years of practice to, to yeah. do it efficiently. But you'll jump out of that twelve to fifteen thousand foot range, uh, and then you don't open until you get to about three thousand feet. So you're free falling wow. for anywhere to sixty to ninety seconds, uh, hopefully under control and doing it correctly. Yeah, and then uh, open, get your stack together so all your parachutes and canopies are are nicely aligned, and then come in and ideally land exactly where you predicted. And, uh, and, and like anything, the military can take something that's a blast and make it an amazing challenge. Yeah. So when you show up, you're, you're just in a, a flight suit and your parachute and, you know, just enjoying the act of skydiving. Yeah. Of course, we can't leave it at that. So we've got to, <laughs> we've got to start adding all your equipment. So your first line belt, your weapon, your ruck, your ruck in training is only going to be about 40 pounds. In reality, you're getting closer to hundred pounds and then you got to climb an altitude now and add not ox- oxygen. So we call that the wall locker jump. So wow. every single thing you've got that you need to operate has to be on your body. So now you're toting a, a 50 pound parachute, an 80 pound ruck, weapon, ammo, water, food, uh, your oxygen tank, your helmet, the mask. It's extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. And you're, you're doing the kind of duck waddle up to the plane. Who knows how long your flight is. And then you do that jump and you, you got to be really good at the basics of how to control your body because the mistakes are magnified if you have all that equipment on. Yeah, I can imagine. But when you do it and you get done and you see everyone's, you know, you got a good count of the amount of shoots and everyone's healthy, uh, come in and land together. Uh, and then that is just to get to work. Uh, <laughs> but those moments are pretty cool when you, you, you see the planning it takes to build all that, the repetitions, and we're just getting to work. Uh, then you get there and you go forward. Those are those are pretty cool moments when you've uh, been able to achieve that level of uh, effectiveness and efficiency. Yeah. yeah, there was a little snow on the ground this morning, and I, it was uh, my car was a little wobbly a couple times, and I was like, "Man, this is a difficult way to get to work." But I, I love how that's how you frame it as this is how we're getting to work. This is how we're getting to work. Whether it's diving, whether it's Halo, um, jumping out of a plane just to get to work. That's that's a, an adrenaline junkie's dream. It, uh, mm. It's definitely a rush. Yeah, for sure. So you finish all these schools, you get your beret. Uh, what happens after that? What's next for, for you? Yeah, so you get hit quickly with the, uh, the realities of the career field you're about to step into. So I was supposed to go to uh, the 2-2 STS out of McCord. And we had an incident where uh, two special tactics officers and a, uh, an, an E-5 Derek Argel, Jeremy Fresquez, and, and Casey Crate were in a, uh, a glider accident in Iraq. So they're they're working with the Iraqis to uh, help build up some of their, I didn't say glider, low low engine powered um, air asset. So they were in a crash, and all all three plus our Iraqi pilot died. Mm. So that kind of reshuffled the deck. Yeah. And so I'm engaged at the time, and we're getting ready to uh, to go to to Seattle, and uh, that all changes. And it's yeah, welcome to the military. 
Um, it's a profession of arms for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've gone through this pipeline for a reason, and uh, some brothers of yours just passed and get ready to adapt. Yeah. So, um, so we get shuffled to go to Okinawa, Japan, um, head out there in um, late 05, early 06, and kind of show up. And, you know, I, I wasn't arrogant enough to think I'd arrived, um, but I thought I had a pretty decent skill set. And then you get there and you see that, yes, you've learned the basics. The difference now when you get to the operational unit is everything is done at a much more fast and crisp rate. Yeah. You meet those E7s, those U8, E8s who've been doing this for a while. And, uh, some of the things you learned in the, in the pipeline were good. Uh, here's the things we've learned through what is now three years of warfare. Now things have evolved. You start seeing the kind of grand scale of things. There, there's no more as instructors setting up everything for you. Oh, for sure. This is on you now. And um, it, it was great. Some really, really great NCOs who, who set me up for, uh, for learning as much as I can. Uh, they invested in me, uh, protected me, and I, I did my best to do back for them. Um, but that was about a three-year assignment over there in uh, Okinawa. The primary mission is that that advise and assist and kind of reassure allies and partners uh, throughout the, the Pacific region. We had Operation Enduring Freedom Philippines. So when uh, we committed the global war on terror, obviously the main effort was, was in Afghanistan. We had our pieces in Iraq. And then the Philippines had uh, several terrorist entities as well that were disrupting uh, really the strength and the functionality of the government to do its job. So. Um, because we committed to helping nations across the globe to yeah. terrorism, and uh, we invested uh, in the Philippines as well. So, spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth between the Philippines and then uh, other nation states that were committed to uh, to doing their part, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, and you're going down there and doing both exercises and, and helping to bring uh, those those partner forces up to speed. Yeah. It's kind of a three-year whirlwind doing that piece. Um and just trying to learn and grow myself, your new guy on the job, picking it all up. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think of you know, global war on terrorism, obviously you're thinking Middle East, uh, you know, Afghanistan, those areas, and then you're in the jungle. So it's kind of a totally different landscape and environment. And, uh, and that has to take some, some tenacity and, and resilience to be able to switch the gears and go, all right, this is a totally different environment, but we're going to keep doing our job because we're, we're professionals. Yeah, you nailed it. We had a lot of terrain advantages in the Middle East mm-hmm. that are not present in the uh, in the Pacific, and then you have a lot of resource challenges because everything, rightly so, the main effort was in the Middle East, uh, and you're you're trying to do similar things but on a shoestring budget out there. Yeah. Uh, so on the whole, in the moment, it's difficult. But as I as I look back on it, I'm very thankful for it. I was able to to get a lot sharper on things that I probably wouldn't have touched uh, that later on in my career came back to benefit. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, you always want to be where your feet are planted, be in that moment, be present, learn everything you can, because you just never know when you're going to have to call back on that, that experience or that training or those moments uh, to use it in, in the next moment that comes. Yeah, for sure. And then ha- did you go on any deployments um, in your time with the team? Yeah. So from Okinawa, I did some time in, uh, in Iraq, um, really in our survey mission set, but the preponderance of it was in the, the Philippines there where we were advising assisting the the Filipino kind of combat controller equipments sure. on their their ability to do close air support. Yeah. That's awesome. And once you were done with that assignment in Okinawa, did you move on to an, an you know, obviously you moved on to another assignment. Where'd you go after that? So three years in Okinawa and then I uh, went went for an assessment for a uh another unit up at Fort Bragg uh, and ended up moving there in in late oh nine. 
and spent about the next eight years uh, at that location. So we got very lucky to, to be able to stay there for a decent while. And, uh, you know, Fort Bragg and Fayetteville is in the, uh, the best area. Yeah. And you get outside of there, um, combined with the, the mission the unit has in the, uh, the area, uh, Southern Pines Partners kind of region. It was, it was really a great, great assignment. Awesome. And uh, I know that you got your bachelor's degree from the academy and, and you continued your education all while you're doing all this, this training and you have such a high tempo job and uh, there's a lot of stress involved. There's a lot of positive things that are coming out of this, uh, these experiences and life lessons that you're learning. Uh, but at the same time, you, you continued your school, right? You went, to, uh, you got, went on and got your master's degree. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, so back then, the Air Force, I don't think would promote you if you didn't have your master's to major. And um, things don't get easier the longer you wait. So my yeah. mentality was, uh, let's just sign it up and, and see how hard this thing really is. So the advantage of being in Okinawa, uh, because you're on an island in the middle of the Pacific, uh, is your flights everywhere are brutally, brutally long. Yes. Um, combine that with some trips to Korea, <laughs> which again, I'm thankful for, because when the Korea spin up in uh, 2018 happened, I was familiar with, with the uh, kind of operating picture there. But uh, exercises in Korea for 30 days can get long. So oh, try yeah. to take advantage of that time to, <laughs> uh, to knock out the masters. And, you know, I'll be frank, it, it, I picked a topic, sports management, and I knew it wouldn't be too difficult. Um, it was very different to pursue a master's on my own time. Yeah. Because uh, the, the one I chose I actually enjoyed and got a lot out of it. And so you, you almost want a little bit more because I really was, was thriving in the topic versus that forced education of college. Yes. And, and getting a master's, you know, I, I think there's an expression, the only thing harder than, than getting a C is an A mm-hmm. to pursue your master's. If you do the work and learn, you can get through it. Uh, you can take your time and spread out. I think the Air Force was wise not to make it a, uh, a mandatory thing for major and then put things in place now when you go to ACSC or any of the kind of fellowship opportunities that are out there to, to help you because it, it can be a burden. But my mindset at the time was just get it done, yeah, uh, learn what you can from it, and then, then move on. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I am a, a living, breathing example of, you know, don't wait, just get it done because I've been in for 16 years and I just got my bachelor's degree. So Congrats. yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that I, I accomplished that. But looking back on it, obviously hindsight's always 2020. I'm just sitting there like I could have got this done a long time ago and uh, maybe pursued something else, but everything happens for a reason. That's right. So you now are sitting in a position uh, that is kind of quite opposite of, of what you were doing before. You are the detachment commander for the Air Force ROTC program at Marquette University here in Milwaukee. How did that transition transpire? How did that happen? And uh, what made you decide that this was uh, something that you wanted to do? Yeah. So at this point, I've, I've been in 19 years, uh, four kids. Uh, my oldest is 15 and, and started high school this fall. So about a year and a half ago, uh, sitting at the joint staff is kind of your decision point to figure out, do you want to go to school? You know, I, I think it was in the cards to get to go to, back to Fort Bragg and kind of put me on a path to do 06 command there. Yeah. And so you got to sit down and have some moments of, you know, the ego in me wants to go do 06 command. It's at the unit I was raised at that I have a very strong affinity for, quite frankly, great people that you want to be surrounded with again. Sure. Uh, the trade-off is now a family who's been forced to move around a, a good amount. Uh, deployed north of 10 times. So if you, you do the math, that's a lot of months and years you've missed of your kids' lives yes. and, uh, and being away from my wife. 
And so if she was in it to win it, uh, I think we could have figured out a way. But when you look at your oldest is going to have to move at least twice in high school, three more behind them are all moving. Uh, what's the right thing for the family versus yeah. the right thing for the ego? And so um, started exploring what the other options were. Um, the Pentagon is a, uh, an interesting place. I don't think anyone wants to retire out of there. Sure. And so when the ROTC opportunities um, kind of came out and I saw Marquette was on there, uh, why not? The wife was definitely wanting to get back to Wisconsin. Yeah. She, she loves it here. And uh, she's moved around with me for 20 years. So I think I owe it to her to, to get us back here, put in the application for Marquette. And uh, I, I figured if I'm going to end the career at 20, 21 years, uh, is the better way to go out, sit in the Pentagon, kind of running the hamster wheel? Uh, or is there something I can give back to the future folks who are going to come in and Absolutely. take the shield from us and continue on marching? So that, that notion that, uh, in theory, I've learned something I can pass to them. Let's help set them up for success as they, uh, as they carry on the torch. It was a pretty cool calling. Uh, so it took a swing and, and it worked out. That's perfect. And have you taken any lessons from your time in the special operations world career field? Have you taken anything from that and applied it to, you know, your position here as a detachment commander? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, as a human, we're naturally biased towards our, our upbringing. Yeah. And so I, I thought very hard before I got here on, on what are the, the big end states I want uh, these cadets to graduate and be, be prepared with. You know, showing up as a second lieutenant, I'm sure I was uh, just as dumb as the rest of them getting out there. <laughs> so what are the few things that are kind of those end states when they finish ROTC uh, that they can show up for and, and be prepared and ready? And there's, you know, again, I just feel so fortunate on, on how I was raised in the combat control career field and lessons learned that I, I wanted to pass it on to them. I think the big thing is kind of what I hit on, though. It's, it's nothing is too basic. Yeah. It's all about the fundamentals. So if we can truly impart the fundamentals of, of leadership, of character, and then design the four-year experience that they're here, you know, for me, just three years in the, the commander seat and layer that on with them. Uh, they'll be set up for success. The, the yeah. secret sauce really is in the fundamentals. Yeah, for sure. So you said you've been in for 19 years now, correct? Mm -hmm. And have you had, I mean, obviously you, you've got your degree, you've got a master's degree, you've done some amazing things in the special operations world, and, and now you're the detachment commander of Marquette. Have you had any goals that you set for yourself throughout your career that you, that you met and, and how did you get to that goal? Yeah. I'm a bit obsessed with goal setting. I think it's a, yeah. a critical skill. And so kind of pulling back big picture, um, I think it's incredibly important that the folks entering the service, whether it's on the enlisted or the officer side, really, really have a deliberate intention of where they want to go. Sure. And they have that systematic goal setting. You know, what's the objective you want, to, you want to accomplish and how do you reverse plan from there? I think you can't just do it at a tactical level. You got to get to the 50,000 foot level. What am I looking at here? 40,000 on down to that 10,000 foot and really uh, identify the micro goals that will get you towards your objective. That, that's week to week. What do yeah. I need to do? What do I need to stop, start and continue to reach the goals that, that I want to set? Um, you got to look at the different domains, whether it's fitness, reading, my professional job, what am I failing with here? And then I think one of the biggest fallacies people do is they don't write down their goal and they're not measurable. And so, you know, graduating the pipeline was a big deal. I knew I wanted to go to the, the unit in North Carolina. And so there, there are certain requirements when it comes with your ability to, to move with the rucksack. There are certain requirements with your proficiency 
enable to be a joint terminal air attack controller, yeah. air, air traffic control in your shooting requirements. So I was very religious at setting out, you know, this is where I want to be on this skill set, uh, this level of complexity. Anyone can talk to a single aircraft and, and employ a single munition. Can yeah. you do it with six, eight, various altitudes, various arriving times? Yeah. Um, you're, you're shooting objectives. It's very easy on a five-yard range with a handgun to hit your target. As you back up and have to be faster, what can you do with your, your M4 and what you're shooting there? So I tried to holistically kind of bend all those things and, uh, and build a plan for it and, and get better. Everyone told me when you start having kids, watch your fitness go out the window. I was convinced I wasn't going to let that happen. Every year, doing a, um, a week, a, um, a yearly inventory. How did I do this year and what I wanted to do and what are my goals for, for next year? I'm old and, and washed up now, <laughs> so uh, the goals change and your three-mile run times aren't going to be below 18 anymore. I'm just yeah. I'm happy if I'm uh, hitting that seven-minute mile mark or just simply cleaning 225 now. But you want to set your goals uh, and really be religious about it. And lastly, is I, th- I think people love to talk about setting their goals and doing them or, or really just talking, but you have to have the discipline to do. It's about the deeds, not the words. I, I yes. think once people realize if they hit their micro goals and they start building on that success and those processes and they can repeat it, uh, they'll get somewhere. But a lot of folks just love to talk. They set a pie in the sky goal that's not measurable and it becomes words. Have the discipline to do. I feel like you're directly talking at me right now because I was, as you were sitting there talking about this, I have personally, personal story here, I have the hardest time because I have such great aspirations, right? And my wife and I always talk about this. I, I always, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. And I always fall through. I have a very difficult time completing goals that I set for myself, mainly in the fitness realm. Uh, because, you know, I grew up, I was a three-sport athlete. Uh, I played basketball in, uh, at a technical college for a year. And I've always had this idea, okay, I'm, I'm just going to always be athletic. I'll always be in shape. Um, obviously, I keep up my, my PT standards. And, you know, if I don't get a 90, I consider that a failure for me. But I always seem to have these lofty goals and I always give up on them. And just hearing you talk and talk about the, you know, the micro goals and making it measurable, it reminds me a lot of David Goggins uh, and how he has the accountability mirror and how he writes that stuff down. I I need to do that. I I really do. Because uh, it's tough to constantly feel like I'm I'm setting a goal for myself and and failing. Sure. It's... uh... It's amazing, right? I don't, I don't have to say a word. You know what you have to do. You know the process. It's the act of doing it. And I feel most folks kind of fall in that bin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think Goggins has got some great advice with, with writing it down and staring at the mirror and kind of figuring out what made you set this goal. Yeah. If you're really serious about it, let's write it down. And then how are we going to keep us on, on, on progress on track to, to meet it? All advice we've heard. Yeah. I would do it. Yeah. That's the hardest part, just doing it. When you don't want to, or you're tired and, you know, or the kids are up late or up early. In my case, it was early this morning. Um, But yeah, it's, it's just doing it. That's great advice. So throughout your 19 year career, what would you say has been some of the best advice that you've learned uh, that you've taken with you throughout your career and, and, and something that you'll, you'll continue on after your journey in the Air Force has ended? Yeah, the, uh, there, there are a ton of themes. I mean, the military truly is 
a, a blessing of folks, whether they spend four or five years in or 20 or, you know, or stay higher for the, the old 39 year run. Uh, for me, it's kind of the notion that, that average leaders have quotes, good leaders have a plan, great leaders have a system. Wow. So the, the life skill that I think applies across service and life is that systematic approach to leadership. So learning to have that attention to detail, thinking two moves ahead, what are the contingencies that could go wrong here? Do I have a red team? Look at my plan before I go to execute and, and identify the shortfalls. Can I lower my ego enough to receive that feedback and get better? Yeah. And I've got a plan. How do I communicate that plan? You know, you walk into your, your guys' space and there's, there's different things on the wall, kind of a picture here or success story there. Then you start to realize it's all got a theme. It's all integrated. Yeah. So I want to be a, I want to be a great leader. I got to have a learning mindset. I got to stay curious as a, as an approach now working with the ROTC cadets, that, that is a theme I want them to understand. And it's got to be prevalent everywhere for them to get for it. For sure. Take that home. And now you got four kids. You're trying to be contributing member to societies and, and raise them in a the right way. Uh, what's the systematic way you can help get them there? How can I plan effectively? And so doing repetition after, re after repetition of that uh, in the, in the air force and the soft world. Uh, it's definitely something I'll take with me forever and, and everywhere I go. Um, you know, example of, of where I felt, uh, holy cow, this stuff works. When we were uh, deployed in, in 2019, uh, it was very imminent, uh, early April, that Lila Haftar and the, the LNA forces were going to initiate some sort of civil war sure. uh, internal to Tripoli. And so at the time, we've got forces spread all over. Libya, and we don't know what's going to happen. We know we're not aimed at us, but we don't want to be caught in a crossfire. Yeah. So in this particular situation, um, we were prepared for quite a few things. We did a really good workup. We knew what our mission was. The force was ready to execute. We did not plan, rehearse, uh, or consider that we'd have to uh, quickly evacuate multiple locations uh, in Libya. And so uh, the moment comes, we get about an hour uh, heads up that things are getting south. And then uh, the AFRICOM commander at the time made the decision, hey, let's, let's withdraw. And so at that point, you've got about eight hours before the bird's going to arrive to get everyone out. Yeah. Um, but it was really, really neat for that team that had rehearsed how to do the fundamentals, how to build a systematic plan, how to think through multiple layers of what's going on and, and come together and row. And so yeah. you, you communicate, you build your plan, you execute. Of course, we're getting pounded by higher headquarters with updates and updates and lows looking for guidance on things. Um, but we stuck to the fundamentals. We knew how to plan. Uh, successfully got the folks out of, uh, out of there. And then the next day we had a smaller contingent that uh, was actually in Tripoli. But again, um, had to work with units out of the Marine Corps that we'd never worked with and had to quickly kind of figure out how to, how to integrate, how to speak the same language on a few things and, and got it done. And so I don't want to sit here and say leading a retreat at Olivia was a highlight, <laughs> um, but the, the notion that something we hadn't prepared for uh, we could easily adapt and start planning towards it. We were able to be successful because uh, we had the reps in planning and the reps in yeah. communication and the reps in attention to detail. For sure. That's an excellent, an excellent example of uh, proper training and, uh, and good leadership. You know, being able to pivot immediately, adapt and overcome. Uh, that, that, that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Pivot in a team that was willing uh, to speak up. You know, yeah. I'm a, huge believer in healthy conflict. I got to hear dissenting opinions and people have got to have the courage to, to speak. Uh, and those moments were great because there were things we weren't thinking of. And the, the, the J6, the comm guy would come up and be like, Hey, 
you guys need to consider X, Y, and Z because I got to do that now before you guys take this action. Otherwise, it won't work. So the sequencing was very important. If he doesn't come around and tell us that, um, we would not have successfully mitigated the risk like we need to. And so again, leading a retreat is not glamorous, but very proud of the way everyone on that team stepped up and, and did their job. Absolutely. Strong trait of uh, leadership, good leadership quality is empowering the people beneath you to be able to feel confident in their voice and being able to speak up. Agreed. And you have to empower them. And those, those folks below have got to understand they need to speak up. Yeah. Uh, so much of this kind of scared to speak up because of what might happen. Um, there is a way to do it 100% professionally if you have the courage to, to be wrong. Because if you speak up, that's what prevents most folks. They're afraid Absolutely. of what might happen. But hey, do it professionally. Let it be known. And then let's rally behind the decision that's made and press. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time in the special operations world, right? And one of the intentions behind this podcast is to kind of uh, bring the, the military life or the Air Force life to, into focus because a lot of the stuff, I mean, a lot of people just don't know what we do. Uh, it's just not generally known what we do as an enterprise. And a lot of the things that, that people see are depicted in movies. And, you know, I know that the, the Navy SEALs are, are glorified in, in movies, and, and, but you don't hear a lot about Air Force special operations. And I, I, I truly believe that there's a large population out there that has no idea that that's something that we even offer. I mean, heck, most of them think we're just pilots. We're all pilots. So is Air Force special operations anything like they sh show in the movies or, or is it a totally different idea? And, and what are we trying to do as an Air Force by providing this support for other branches and services? Sure. You know, from the, the combat control perspective, I think uh, Transformers had a movie. Uh, there were some advisors on there from the career field who helped. And so there's moments in there where you're like, ah, uh, they really got that right. Yeah. Just about every movie out there is going to get snippets of it. Sure. Um, but quite frankly, new folks coming to the military, one of the major things we battle is, is undoing uh, what folks have seen <laughs> yeah. uh, in the movies. You know, the career field is pretty unique. It, it takes its origins back to Operation Eagle Claw and, and how do we get forces postured at a, a desert landing site, a desert logger site to eventually marshal and follow forces for an attempted rescue of the U.S. citizens held at the, the embassy there in, in Tehran. Yeah. And so pretty cool origin of uh, one guy going out there, uh, setting up an airstrip, burying some lights uh, that were remotely turned on as, as aircraft were coming in uh, a few days later. And so that really grew from there to kind of encompass three big things. Um, how do we do assault zone seizures? So think big Panama-type operation. We've got to jump in and take over an airfield and do it rapidly. Yeah. Uh, so we were rehearse and do that religiously with the uh, 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, amazing mission, extremely complex, uh, but you want to talk about ability to plan and, and see contingencies, uh, work with the Rangers for a bit. On that role, generally the combat controllers and pararescue will be the, the first ones to jump in, got their motorbikes, so they'll go and clear the airstrip, uh, make sure there's no debris out there, then you start landing, landing the train after that. More pull aircraft come on, you start building combat power, and then you, you project that combat power. Yeah. So tons of workups, tons of rehearsals, but a very uh, rewarding mission. From there, if you want to do it in a, uh, a non-pavement runway, so think of a dirt landing strip, kind of the early days of Afghanistan, so Rhino, a desert landing site of, we need to occupy terrain. There's no surrounding nations that will let us launch from there. 
Uh, let's put a foothold here and just outside of Kandahar and project air power. And then lastly is that that close air support um, joint terminal attack controller. Yeah. So what we found is, is culturally, uh, not everyone is on the same page when it comes to things. So if the Air Force is going to employ air power, air to ground effects, uh, would it be good if we had some airmen who could talk to them, kind of understand and can really be specialists in what it is, the, the particular capabilities of an aircraft? When I say something to a pilot, what does that mean? Well, I've spent 20 years in this career field kind of figuring out those things. I've built relationships. We've rehearsed. We've integrated. We've tried new things. So now we do it for real in combat. We're on the same page. Yeah. And so those mission sets have kind of evolved and, and changed over the years. Obviously, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we, we really got good and refined them and honed them. And so what you'll see is from a combat control perspective, um, you'll, you'll have a, a survey team that'll go out and find different locations where we could potentially do uh, activities to land aircraft, kind of a preparation environment role. And then you'll have various uh, JTACs assigned to a SEAL team or an ODA, spe Army Special Forces team, uh, to be that air-to-ground specialist uh, to help, help bring in close air support where needed. And then we truly haven't done a, a large-scale airfield seizure in an operational sense, uh, really since the early days of, uh, of Iraq, and even yeah. then they weren't full-on contested. Uh, we've come very close, contingency operations and plan-ups and spin-ups. Uh, they haven't come to fruition. But the, the whole theory was, can we be more effective in integrating air power uh, with the ground elements? And do we need airmen that specialize in that? The answer was yes. Uh, it fell under the SOCOM umbrella. So I kind of, my whole career has been both one foot in the Air Force, one foot in SOCOM. Yeah. Uh, so you get to learn kind of the, the best of both uh, entities. And you just kind of press from there. Yeah, that's awesome. Because, again, a lot of people don't know that we do that. And you made... I mean, you painted a perfect picture there. If we've got the, you know, the air power, we need the, the airmen on the ground to be able to almost conduct, to be the conductors. Sure. And, uh, so, yeah, that, that's amazing. The last question I have for you is, let's say I'm a brand new airman, and I just walked through the gateway to the Air Force at Lackland Air Force Base, and I sat down with Lieutenant Colonel Warren. Colonel Warren, what would you say to that brand new airman? Welcome. Yeah. You have never arrived. It is a long road ahead. It can be as rewarding as you make it, but you got to have a learning-based mindset. So step number one, I think, to having that learning-based mindset is to learn to lead yourself. If you want to rule an empire, learn to lead yourself. Yes. So that's understanding who you are, what you're about, your weaknesses, your strengths, all kinds of underlying things that if you're not deliberate on understanding why you respond the way you do in a moment, you got to get a hold of that. Once you can lead yourself, then you can start to lead your teams. And then from there, you can start to solve wicked problems. I think there's really five basic things uh, that, that is probably a lifetime journey to, to continue on. But if we define leadership as leadership equals influence, the continuation, the creation, and the cessation of with the principle of inertia, how do I use leadership to influence in, a, in the way I choose uh, to meet my end state, my objectives? How do I get that group of individuals to achieve a common thing? And so for me and what I've preached and what I would continue to tell this airman in, in this five-minute convo that's probably going to turn into an hour, <laughs> even if uh, we don't have the time, but uh, he's got to understand that, that the leadership and, and the ability to be maximally effective and influence starts with who folks see you from a character standpoint. Yeah. Our core values of integrity, service, and excellence 
have got to be so ingrained that you're not even thinking of them. It's a mm-hmm. permission to play. You have them just to show up to the game, just as a ticket to the dance. When you start to ingrain on that, okay, the folks will see they can trust you and you can build. From there, I think you got to have transparency. Truly, folks cannot wonder where you sit on an issue. They can't wonder what you think. You can't be afraid to lay out to them uh, expectations, feedback. You can't be pressured into saying yes. you got to have the transparency and the gusto to say no. And I think people struggle with this because they assume that that transparency equates to some sort of uh, either rude or dismissive approach. Mm-hmm. I'm here to tell you, you can, you can be very transparent and do it in a compassionate way. And if the, the moment requires a more direct approach, that's okay too. Yeah. You've got to develop each of those skill sets to know who you're talking to and what's going to resonate with them. Uh, if someone's a bit cocky and running rogue, maybe they need that bit grabbed by the collar. Someone's kind of hesitant, not knowing what they're doing. Maybe a bit of compassion in your transparency is important. Sure. Um, from there, I kind of talked about already, but that, that healthy conflict. Again, folks associate this, this friction and ad hominem personal attacks. But if we don't have healthy conflict and I can't publicly and professionally disagree with you, I don't think we're going to get to the ultimate solution. We're yeah. going to continue just kind of follow blindly and uh, commanders won't be given advice from below and the guys below are going to be frustrated that they can't speak up as a commander as a, you know, this is a flight commander. This is a, a first Lieutenant talking in to an E seven NCO make no mistake that E seven has been around and you need to listen to them, but not all folks are the same. Some NCOs are different in quality wise and talent for sure. So you need to be able to have that conversation and as that Lieutenant, you need to be humble enough when he's disagreeing with you. There's something there Yeah, and start figuring it out. You gotta be curious you got to be able to lower your ego, suspend your judgment, choose not to be harmed. Choose not to be harmed and you won't be. Ask the question. Um, there's a great, you know, kind of systematic way of E plus R equals O. The event plus the response equals the outcome. In that wow. equation, we get to choose how we respond. I can respond curiously. I can be dismissive, but I control it. So I, I think it's extremely important to grow that curious mindset and respond um, in a way where you get to learn more of what's going on. And then kind of lastly is we've got to learn to prioritize. If you've got five priorities, you don't have any. <laughs> Understand what the main thing is and keep the main thing the main thing. The discipline to identify that the impediment to the path is the path uh, will set you free. And, and then your, your troops will love that you can prioritize. We're not chasing everything. I know what's most important. We communicate and we, and we execute. Oh, I like that one. I do. I like that. If you have five priorities, you don't have any priorities because that's, that's how it is for me, <laughs> especially with, with, uh, the fitness journey. So yeah, that's amazing advice, Colonel Warren. That, that, that is awesome. Um, I really appreciate that. And I know that if I was a brand new airman, I think that those were some, some great words of advice. So. Uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, the nation needs leaders right now, mm-hmm. uh, the service where the stakes are higher to be frank. Yeah. I think all forms of contributing to what this nation are doing are important. There's a huge difference in what we get wrong if you're in the service which, versus what you get wrong in the civilian world. Absolutely. So it's important. We need to build leaders and we need to make them as, as lethal and as effective as they can be. Yeah, absolutely. Before we wrap this thing up, Colonel Warren, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Yeah, I, I think I'll just circle back to the kind of my leadership theme here. So the yeah. You know, in ROTC, we, we may have folks for two weeks. We may have them for two years. Uh, they may complete the program and stay in for four years. Uh, they may stay till 20. 
that's why I think it's very important we, we build leaders for society, develop yeah. leaders for the Air Force, and quite frankly, build leaders who shrink from nothing. We need folks who have moral courage, physical courage, who are willing to, to lay it out all on the line. But the pursuit of leadership, I don't think could be done enough. So I'd ask uh, those folks considering to come in, uh, if you want an environment that's going to grow you, the service will do a great job at it. I don't think there's a better calling than, than being a part of the profession of arms to help your nation. Uh, but stay hungry. Learn what you can. You know, at the end of the day, it, it takes all entities aligned to pursue an enemy at such a pace that they, they can't bury the debt. Yeah. That alignment, those skills, that's what creates that pace and that energy. And quite frankly, that's, that's the art of leadership. If you want to get better at it, the services is definitely a route that's going to give you a masterclass in leadership. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Colonel Warren. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to hear your story. And uh, you have such great advice on, on leadership. It's, it's awesome. So, so thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, hope this podcast continues to grow and uh, does good things. Ah, thank you, sir. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Air Power Hour. Take care, friends. Mm-hmm.